another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing times, the changing world, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, once again, it ain't dictated quite a bit differently as I'm in my home office. And uh, in just a few moments, I'll be introducing Dave Canterbury, who's going to be with us for an interview today. This is episode 291 of the Survival Podcast, and uh, I'm really happy that we have Dave with us today. But before I introduce him, I want to take care of our housekeeping. Number one, as always, make sure you're supporting our uh, sponsors. Please remember that our sponsors are not just people that show up with a check and get to be on the site. Um, they have to go through. First, I have to approve them and say I'm willing to back them as a personal endorsement. Then they go before our listener ad council, and only if the listener ad council approves them do we let them on. And as I mentioned yesterday, uh, we actually have one, and I'm going to have to send them our money back because we're, we're kicking them out because the council said no. And I was willing to take their money, so I really do do that. That way you know you get solid endorsements. First sponsor of the day is TeaPartySilver.org. Beautiful coins, a lot of great stuff there. As I've said, I own every coin that they sell myself, giving them away to nieces and nephews for Christmas this year. Lasting value, really beautiful stuff. Silver belongs in your investment portfolio. It's a great way to do it. Uh, next sponsor today is Tactical Response Gear, James Jager's operation. Great tactical training, great tactical equipment. James has been a huge supporter of the show. He was actually the first person that stepped up as an official uh, sponsor financially for the show. Did that many, many months ago. Uh, and he's a good guy. He's been on to do interviews with us, and uh, I can tell you that if anything's ever not right, he's going to make it right. That's why we're pl- proud to have him as a sponsor. Uh, next, make sure you get involved with our forum. We have a great discussion forum. Uh, you'll learn an awful lot. You'll make some really good relationships, and uh, I think if you're not involved with our forum, you're missing a really big asset that we have for you. Last but not least, if you think this show's worth more than 20 cents an episode, consider joining the Member Support Brigade, and you'll get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, right now, you get about $90 worth of retail value for free the day that you sign up, uh, so that'll cover your membership for the first year. And with that, I want to go ahead and introduce Dave Canterbury uh, to the, on the Survival Podcast. Dave's most widely known for his amazing videos on YouTube, where he has about 250 videos posted, last I checked anyway. Um, when you watch his YouTube videos, to me it's like you're getting like a college degree in bushcraft, uh, in primitive and modern methods of bushcraft as well. Uh, I think he's actually soon going to be on the Discovery Channel with a new series. We'll have him tell you a little bit about that, and it really is because of all the work that he's done on YouTube. He's also the owner of uh, Wilderness Outfitters Archery and the Pathfinder School. He's an amazing resource. He's worked tirelessly, tireless, whatever. He's worked really hard to help people learn to reconnect with their roots uh, by spending quality time in the wilderness. Dave, thanks for joining us today. Hey, buddy. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you on, man. You just got some really good news from the Discovery Channel. Why don't you tell us about that first? Well, you know, um, I've been working with the Discovery Channel for quite a few months now. They actually contacted me uh last year around Christmas and asked me if I'd be interested in doing anything with them in the future. And, of course, you know, who's going to turn down Discovery Channel, right? So I was like, yeah, absolutely. And a few months ago they called me and asked me if I'd be interested in doing some screen testing for a new survival series that was going to come out in 2010. Um, I'm not at liberty to discuss too much about it right now or disclose a lot of information, but the working name thus far of the show is called Dual Survivor. The concept of the show was to have two people with opposite opinions on how things might be done in certain situations, 
Um, they wanted one uh, more military type uh, survival woodsman, and they wanted one person that was more of a naturalist type uh, woodsman. And they wanted to put them together and see how that the reaction between the two individuals would happen in different situations. So I went through several screen tests and uh, ended up, they called me a couple weeks ago and asked me if I would uh, take a job on the show. And we are due to work on some contract negotiations and things within the next week and leave to film the first episode within the next 30 days. That's awesome. And let me guess which one of the two you are. I'm thinking you're kind of the military guy, right? You know, I am. And I'll tell you, Jack, there's a lot of misconception about uh, military survival experts. And I think that this really came out to a lot of people within Discovery Network during the attempts to screen test for this show because the, their preconcept was that they were going to find a military-trained survival expert that they could use with the person that was a naturalist on the show. Mm-hmm. And I think they found out after they went through about nine other guys besides me that were actual members of the Special Forces. They were SEER, seer school instructors and things of that nature that had you know very high-quality backgrounds in military training, didn't really have their true skills in the woods that are needed for a wilderness self-reliance situation. And I think that's a big misconception in the world now that that people that are in the special operations group within the United States military are trained survivalists. They're not. You know, they're, they're trained to do a job, and they're trained as far as survival to get from point A to point B to get out or to extract, and that's about it, or to evade and escape the enemy. They're not really trained to survive off the land as is, you know, portrayed in like Rambo and things like sure. that. They're not really sure. trained to that extent. Yeah, they're so operators. They, they have a job to do. That's very, very important. I think people miss that, that these are guys that, you know, they're supposed to stay long enough, alive long enough to kill the enemy and go home, right? They're not supposed to hang out there for, for, for three months out in the woods living off the land. That is exactly right. And that was a big misconception that Discovery had, I think. And when they got me, because my training is, is so much of it is self-taught, and very little of it is military-trained survival, mm-hmm. that when they got me, they almost got a combination of what they were looking for in one person, and it kind of stumped them, I think. Yeah, like, and what do we do now? they had to look around. <laughs> yeah, like, what are we going to do? Exactly. You know, this yeah. is our concept, and it's not going to work. What are we going to yeah. do? And I think that they had to go through all these other military people and all these other screen tests to decide, you know, hey, what we had the very first time was what we want. We just got to figure out how to make it work. So, I mean, there is going to be different opinions between myself and, and, and my counterpart, Cody Lundin, but they won't be to the extent of, you know, military versus naturalist. It'll be more the extent of this is the way I think we should do things from an Eastern Woodland standpoint or yep. from a, you know, uh, a person who is only worried about survival, per se, and not worried about the leave no trace and, and yeah, things yeah. along that nature. You understand that what sounds, I'm saying? Yeah, I that think would that's be the concept. awesome. I think that's going to be an awesome show. I can't wait to see it. But, I mean, let's talk for a second here, just so people get to know you, how you kind of got into this industry in the first. You were in the military at one time, and I'm sure that had some kind of imprint on you that's led you to where you're at. How did you exactly get into this whole survivalist industry that you're in now, just like I am, and, and, and what's it mean to you now that you're there? You know, I'll tell you, the education part of it is, is educating other people is what it's all about to me, especially young people. But I really, I loved the woods as a kid, and I loved to hunt and fish and trap and things like that. And I spent a lot of time in the woods. And then when I was in the military, you know, you you 
you do get some type of training and things like that, and you get to spend a lot of time in the field. And I spent time in Central America in the jungle quite a bit when I was in when I was in the military. And so you you gain a love for the for being you know next to the wilderness and next to the woods and next to Mother Nature. But the thing with it is, I think, is that. For me, what happened was, and I know that uh, you're a bow hunter as well, but what happened to me was you get to the point where after you got used to shooting rifles at targets three and four and 500 meters out to 1,000 meters away, it gets to the point where to go out in nature and shoot an animal with a gun almost becomes a no-brainer. It's yeah. not a challenge anymore. It's yeah. a joke. So to get back to what you want, you have to get back to, and it, that's what brings you into the primitive aspect of things or brought me there, was to get back to the challenge and the enjoyment that I had as a kid mm-hmm. in nature, I had to get back to the primitive ways of doing things so it would be more of a challenge. Yeah, I understand exactly what you mean. You, you're in Central America. Were you in Panama at any time? I was in Panama, Nicaragua, and El Salvador. Wow, you were in a spot back. I was down there Honduras. for three years myself. I was in uh, the Aguan River region of Honduras for six months, Panama for two years, spent a little bit of time in Costa Rica. Uh, okay. That's kind of crazy we how people... a lot of the same jungle, and that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, let, let's chat a little bit about the bow hunting thing. Um, you know, what is it for you that makes it so special? I started bow hunting when I was 14 years old. Basically, as soon as I was old enough and, and large enough to pull back a, a bow that was capable of killing a deer, and from the first one I was hooked. What, what is it about bow hunting that's, you know, really special to you? You know, I think the thing about bow hunting is it's, it's such a connection um, with the nature itself, because with with bow hunting, it's so much different. Like I said, with a rifle, I mean, you can kill, let's just say a deer, you know, at 600 yards with a rifle. It's very easy, and there's no challenge to it. If you can see the deer, you can shoot the deer. Sure. With a bow, especially with traditional equipment, it's a whole lot different because your effective range of that weapon is 20 to 25 yards. So you almost have to get within the inner circle of that animal. You have to invade his personal space to shoot him or to harvest that animal. And to do that requires special skills. Not just anybody can do that. It's something that you have to practice, and it becomes, you know, it, it, it forces you to learn to understand animal behavior. It forces you to understand animal sign. It forces you to understand tracking. It forces you to understand how to move silently in the, in the woods. It, it, all of those things that it forces on you to make it a challenge and make it more enjoyable and make it more of an experience. And I've said many times, you know, if I shoot a 90-pound doe with mm-hmm. a longbow, that's as good a trophy to me as a 10-point buck with a compound bow in a tree stand any day of the week. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I think another thing, and I guess people will never understand this unless they, they go out and actually hunt archery. There's two things that are uniquely challenging to me as a bow hunter. One is... You've, you're set up, I don't care if you're in a tree stand on the ground, you've stalked, you were sitting, you're still hunting, whatever it was, but you now have a deer that's presenting a shot. You now have to get the bow up and drawn without getting busted. And if they if they bust you pulling the bow back, you're done. I've seen them drop under an arrow, jump over an arrow. But even when you get the bow back, you have the shot, the animal's head's down or behind a bush or something, you've got a clean shot at the vitals, there's an inner game of bow hunting, something that's going on inside your mind mentally. You can put those arrows 25 yards into a pie plate a thousand times during the summer when you're practicing, and when you're out there and you've got that bow back, you can hear your heart beating. And everything in your head, even though it's not true, is telling you that animal can hear your heartbeat. 
because it sounds so loud to you. And to me, that makes it almost mystical when you're in that situation that you're able to pull it off, let the arrow go, make a clean kill. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it's just an amazing experience to me. And that's why I've done some shows on it, and I want people to go out there and do it. I think the more people that do it uh, and, and get involved in it, I know when we go out in the woods, especially you're hunting public land, you see somebody and you're like, man, I wish there was nobody here. But the reality is without more hunters, we're not going to preserve the sport. Yeah, that's true. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that what you're talking about, about the mystique of bow hunting, comes down to, I, I really believe, you know, I'm sure that you've noticed, when you go out and you hunt with a rifle or a shotgun, you don't have that same adrenaline rushing yeah. through your system that you have with a bow. And I think what that boils down to is, you know, your 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 inner psychic is telling you, you know, that you're you're back to the way things are meant to be, and it's a challenge again. You know, I can screw this up so many different ways, and not kill this animal, so I have to do everything right, and you almost become nervous because of that. Yeah. Well, with a rifle, it's point and shoot. It's a dead animal. Yeah, it's it's, it's you are actually in a predatory uh, state, exactly. I think, with a bow, and I think with a rifle, you're in a mechanical state. It's just I agree. And I, I think a new that. hunter, a new hunter, the first time they're in the woods, they can get that buck fever with a gun. But I think that, like you said, once some confidence comes behind the equipment with a rifle, it's it's second nature. When you've sat in a, in a, in a you know a on the ground in a prone position, knocking down half-man-sized targets at 300 meters with iron sights, and now I've got a scope and a deer 75 yards away, and I've got a rest. It's it, it's so academic that you lose that. Let's segue off of that, though, before we end up doing a whole show on bow hunting, because I know you and I could. But because we're here to talk about survival. When I listen to you present out at Dirt Time, you said something that I was like, man, I feel the same way, even though I've called my show the Survival Podcast. Because part of that's marketing. That's what people are looking for. So you have to give absolutely. Them what that's looking a great for, buzzword, right? Yeah, but absolutely. you said you hate the term survival situation. Can you tell folks about that? Because I think there's a lot of people really need to hear what you have to say on that. Well, you know, I, I don't like the word survival situation because survival is like life and death to me. And if you have not trained yourself mentally and physically and you don't have the tools in your back pocket that you've practiced over the years to maintain yourself in a situation that's less than opportunistic or less than optimal in the wilderness, then you put yourself in a survival situation. A good example of that would be, and I think I use this at dirt time even, you know, if I'm, if I'm, you know, Johnny the, Johnny the executive and I go out every day and, and, and jog in my cross trainers out in the woods and I do a 10 mile jog and I get halfway out there and I sprain my ankle so bad that I can't walk on it because now all I have with me because I don't have any training and I don't have any understanding of what, you know, it's about to live overnight in the woods if I have to in a, in a less than optimal situation. Now all I've got with me is my, you know, maybe I was wearing some type of a wind shirt and I have, you know, my camelback on my back or my water hydration on my back, and that's about all I have. And now I'm forced into a situation where I've got to spend the night out here because I can't get out and drag myself out in the dark with a sprained ankle. Now I've put myself in a survival situation. Or if I was a little bit well-trained and a little bit more educated and understood that, hey, if I throw, you know, an emergency space blanket and a garbage bag even into my hydration bladder, now I've set myself up a shelter. And if I put something in there, it will give me instant fire, whether that's cotton balls and Vaseline and a cigarette lighter, or whether that's something more complicated like a ferro rod, you know, and some wet fire, then 
I've taken that situation away, and I'm, there's no such thing as a survival situation anymore. All I'm doing is making do with an uncomfortable situation until I can get back to where I came from. And I think that's so awesome, and I think that really applies to day-to-day preparedness in the home for disaster planning as well as the same type of thing. I don't ever want my people that listen to my show to feel like I'm in a, you know, a live or die situation unless, you know, we discussed this too. You can be completely prepared and, and you're out in the wilderness canoeing and the canoe tips over and now you are in a survival situation because something went wrong, but it wasn't that you didn't take any preemptive steps. You probably still have some things. Uh, one of the things you just said that I think is important for people to think about as well is you said have the tools. And I know that when you say that, you're not just talking about the space blanket and the flint starter and, and, and the, uh, the Vaseline-soaked uh, cotton balls. You're also talking about the skills and the skills being tools as well. That's correct. That's correct. And that goes along with exactly what you said. You know, your, your canoe dumps over and your equipment goes, you know, to the bottom. And now you slam to the bank and you're freezing your tail end off and you have nothing. Maybe you've got your knife that was attached to your belt. Well, the tools I'm talking about are the skills, whether they be primitive or modern, to understand now what can I do with nothing to make sure that I have what I need. Can I start a fire with a bow drill? Can I start a fire with a hand drill? Can I build a primitive-type shelter if I have to keep me warm and keep me dry? Those are the things. How do I collect water and purify it now that I've dropped my canteen overboard? You know, those are the things that you need to understand, and that's why we push the primitive skills so hard. And I say this a lot of times in my lectures and on my videos and in my training seminars. I tell people, you know, we're not practicing primitive skills so that we can never use a modern item. We're practicing primitive skills to replace the modern items if for some reason we lose them, damage them, break them, or we don't have them. In any situation, and, it, and that's just like what we talk about with disaster planning. We don't forego the GPS day-to-day in our lives in our car, but we also need to know how to do basic navigation because the system of support itself can fail. That's correct. I agree with that wholeheartedly. So you run the Pathfinder School, right, and you've developed this 10-part system that's like the core of the school's teaching. I know you can't go through the whole thing in an interview like this, but can you kind of briefly say a few things about, you know, the 10 parts of your system, how you put that together, how it applies to, you know, instead of, let's say, survival training, preparedness training? Sure. Um, you know, what I tried to do was I wanted to come up with some type of a basic outline, if that's what you want to call it, that would help people do self-study, that would tell them, okay, I have a list in front of me, just like a to-do list. If I learn this, 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 and this, and I do it in some semblance of order, then I understand what I need to do in the wilderness to be self-reliant. And so what I did was I took, you know, I decided on a 10-block system, staying basically with the metric system. I know a lot of people don't like that, but everything is in 10s. Um, and what I did with that was I went through and took the 10 blocks, and each block is numbered for each numbered block has something that goes with that block that correlates to that number. Just to give you an example of that would be block four covers the big four groups of wild edibles. So in block four, you're given an outline of the four types of wild edibles, and those are the things that you need to understand and do self-study on to be self-reliant in the woods. Gotcha. And I think that's where your military background comes out. I think for a lot of people in this industry, myself, you, uh, Ron Hood, for example, uh, that have military backgrounds, it's not so much that when we train people or teach people about survival or self-sufficiency or homesteading or anything like that, that it's so much that we learned it in the military. But what, what you learn in the military is this formalized approach of training. 
And, and I'd say that that's probably a big part of what's, what you've got as an asset now as you're teaching people is you learned how to train and you learned how to be trained in the military. You know what? I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think, I think you're absolutely right about that. And that may even be a point that I've overlooked in myself that you just brought up and now makes me understand a lot better about why I do some of the things the way I do. It's not the survival training. It's the training as a trainer. Yeah. In yeah. Military. Yeah, and I just, it helps you set up a structured system. You're exactly right. Yeah, and I just had John McCann on yesterday, and we were talking about how it's not only learning how to train and be trained, but as a, you know, you're never really an expert. What you do is become a more advanced student, and as you progress, you become yeah, you're a teacher, but you do your greatest learning while you're teaching, and I think that's something that's planted in a lot of military people as well. You know, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that. You know, that's a big advantage that I've had on YouTube over the last year and a half because as I teach and as I do these videos that are instructional videos for different aspects of wilderness self-reliance, it never fails that somebody will send me an email or make a comment on a video that I learned something from. Sure, sure. So I've become a student and a teacher at the same time, and I think that is an absolute wonderful thing to happen. Have you ever gone out and shot a video? And then you end up not using that video because you had a whole plan. You were going to put it together and do this great video, and then you went out there and figured out, well, that doesn't work. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Many times, you know. And, you know, when I first started shooting videos, when I first started shooting videos, you always want things to be perfect. Yeah. You know, so when something like that happens, you edit it out of the film. Yeah. If something didn't work, you just edit it out. Well, now I've learned that people want to see that because Absolutely. they learn from your mistakes. Absolutely. So now I leave those things in. You know, if yeah. I make a mistake or I can't get something to work, I leave it in, and then I try to figure out how to make it work, and it makes it be all that much better. Yeah, and I think that I think that you know, as 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 a producer of content, you get worried that the public's going to look at that and go, "Well, this guy doesn't know what he's doing." But that's kind of making our point for us that you never stop learning, and it doesn't matter if I've been doing this for ten years; I still have things to learn, and I can teach you better by showing you my failures than just showing you all my polished. Stuff. So you know, I that's absolutely a fact. I agree with that wholeheartedly, Jack. I just had an email this morning from a guy. I had just shot a video yesterday uh, that involved basically starting a fire in, in soaking wet conditions. And I was struggling with it, you know, a couple times. Mm-hmm. But the guy sent me an email back, and he said, you know, he said, even though you struggled to start that fire and it took you a long time, I was just in that situation a couple weeks ago, and I really got mad and lost my patience and started burning stuff in my backpack to get a fire because I yeah. was so afraid I wasn't going to get a fire. He said, but watching you do that taught me I just need to be more patient. Yeah, yeah. You know, so those things work. Yeah. And, you know, it's easy to get a well-seasoned piece of wood and show somebody how to do a bow drill, and that wood's been dried out for months, and everything's perfect, and the tender's perfect. But when you end up in a primitive situation, uh, you don't always have that perfect stuff to work with. Or, I absolutely did, agree with did that. Did you hear what happened to Alan, not at this dirt time, but at a previous event that he just found out about like a year later at dirt time, where somebody went and stole his his, his drill and uh, his baseboard? Um Overnight and soaked it in water and then put it back in his pack and he was and he was trying to do a demonstration oh, on starting man. a fire with a bow drill or a hand, I don't know if it was a bow drill or a hand drill but Probably he couldn't, hand get, drill, he, he no couldn't get it going he couldn't get it going yeah. and he ended up getting some different equipment and getting it going and he had, he didn't find out for about a year that it had been done to him if you could have seen wow. his face that was worth going to dirt time alone to see his face when I bet it was I don't even remember who it was fessed up to it but um, you know. What I want to talk about, though, a little bit with you is 
my audience is really big on self-sufficiency. We do a lot on homesteading, uh, permaculture techniques, gardening, small livestock, disaster preps, food storage, emergency planning, evacuation planning. And, and you look at the other side of this industry and it's primitive skills and bushcraft. But I think there's a huge bridge between, between those two worlds. The day that the systems of support fail out in, in modern society and the lights go off and the water stops flowing, you're in almost the same situation. Now, you've got structures around you, and you've got all of these things that you've prepared for, but all of these primitive skills become really valuable even in an urban or a suburban environment. Can you kind of discuss that a little bit? Yeah, and, you know, I absolutely agree with that because I think that, and, and a lot of people, this is another thing that I try to teach a little bit, and I've kind of went about it in a roundabout way with my school and in my videos and things, but I've shot a lot of videos that were very near to roads and things like that and underpasses. And people have always said, why is there cars in the background of your video? Aren't you in the wilderness? <laughs> no, I'm not in the wilderness. You know, but if everything goes to crap yeah. and I don't have anything in, you know, anything for luxuries in my house like electricity anymore and running water, you know, right down the street from me, I know where there's a resource. Got you. It might be under an underpass, but it's a flowing creek that I can purify water out of and it's always going to be there. You know, I might not have, you know, I don't have a garden myself. I, 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 admittedly, I don't have a garden, but I can, I've got so many wild edibles around me in close proximity that I don't worry about it. And one of the things that I worry about with having big homesteads and gardens and things like that are those become, in my opinion, targets. Sure. Once things do go bad. Sure. You understand and what I'm saying? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. And we, we talk a lot about how to build up, you know, defenses and hardening and, and why that you know, that hones in so much on, I know so many people that are kind of like the secretive survivalist, right? They have all this food and stuff, but they won't tell anybody about what they do. And, and I, I, there's, right. there's, a, there's a good side to that, but there's a bad side too. To me, there's a huge reason to build some local community and at least, you know, all the houses that adjoin your property and one level further out because in a bad situation, having that group cohesive, even if they're not maybe as into it as you are, but just aware and kind of having a prearranged agreement that, hey, we're going to take care of each other and look after each other uh, is a huge advantage. The other thing is that's why I personally – um, it should be this spring we're going to be moving to our place in Arkansas, and we're going to be getting out of this suburban environment. And there's only ten people on the entire road, and it's a two-mile-long road, and I know every single one of them better than I know my neighbors here because in the country I think you get a better uh, a better community sense just with neighbors. People are a lot more open, even though they're kind of more of a, a private type of individual. I would absolutely agree with that. But I, I think to your point that you were making as far as the, the, the bridge between the two, I think that, once you get to that point, sooner or later you're going to exhaust certain Absolutely. things that you have at hand. And when those things are exhausted, you need to understand. And part of what you learn in bushcraft, aside from the skills, that part of learning the skills means that you learn to improvise, adapt, and overcome, to use a marine terminology. I'm not a marine. But to use a marine terminology, you learn to improvise, adapt, and overcome. And if you can learn to do that in the wilderness or in the wild, then you can learn to do that around your house as well. Absolutely. I think that's another it makes thing. Think completely different. Yeah, I think that's another thing that military people bring into their civilian lives, no matter what they do, is that I, I think there's a typical mentality that people need to get over. If they didn't, you know, if they didn't get it from the military, they got to find it a different way of, well, if something doesn't work, then it doesn't work. Where a military mentality is, if something didn't work, I better figure out how the hell to make it work because you didn't have projects in the military, you had missions. 
And a project can fail. Correct. A mission is not allowed to fail. And I think the day that you end up in, in any kind of a situation where the, your life or the life of the people you're trying to take care of is threatened, it just became your mission. Whether you're familiar with the term or not doesn't matter. It now becomes critical, and you've got to get it done. I agree with that, Jack. I agree with that. So, you know, I've always said what you do and how you think, and this is kind of exactly what we're saying here, are more important than what you carry with you. Uh, I'm sure that applies in the stuff that you do in the wilderness or even in an environment that's urban in nature. Absolutely. I mean, everything's about prioritization, number one. You have to prioritize, so that's how you're thinking. You know, you always think about what do I have to do first, what do I have to do second in any given situation. And if you prioritize things, then you're going to be better off. The other, the other part of that is, you know, what you think and what you know. The knowledge that you have of any skill, whether it be an urban survival skill, if that's what you want to call it, or a, or a wilderness survival skill, but those are tools that you have in your back pocket so that you can use them to help you prioritize and help you get the things done you need to get done to maintain yourself. Absolutely. And, I mean, it's, it's crazy to sound kind of bridging things together. Uh, I've talked to more than one oncologist, you know, cancer doctors, that have said to me that the patient that is a pain in the ass almost always survives at a higher rate than the patient that's compliant, meaning that the guy that says, okay, well, that's fine that I need this radiation or this chemo. What is it? How does it work? What are the side effects? Why are you giving it to me? What are my alternatives? Even if they do, if both patients do the same thing with the same disease, the one that's a pain in the ass lives. And I've asked a couple of them, why is that? He said, because they know what they do matters. And I think in a survival right. situation, there are no more true words than what you do has a greater impact on your situation than anything anybody else around you do. And I guess the reason that people have trouble with that is, do we live in this world where somebody fixes everything for us anymore? I, you know, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And that's, you know, part of what we strive to teach in, in the Pathfinder system is doing this stuff by yourself. It's not going out with a buddy and doing it. It's going out by yourself and doing it. And by doing things by yourself, you become self-reliant. And I think self-reliance is a huge thing that the United States in general is missing right now. We don't have enough self-reliant people. We all expect somebody else to do for us. We think the government's going to give us this, the government's going to take care of this, the president's going to give us this, yeah. you know, and it's not, that's not the case. If you don't take care of yourself, nobody else is going to take care of you. And I think with things like you're saying, like, yeah, you go out and practice your skills a few miles from your home, and there's a there's an overpass behind you. Well, that gives you the ability to back out when something goes wrong, but it puts you in enough of a situation that it forces you when you're out there, as you say, by yourself to get through things on your own rather than, well, what does your buddy think? Or if you had four hands instead of two, would it be easier to get this done? That's correct. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And the other thing that that gives you by practicing skills close to your house is, it gives you tools in the sense that it almost gives you a cache, if you have, that's what you want to call it, mm -hmm. of an area that you have resources. Sure. In time of disaster or in time of need, you know where those resources are at around your house. I mean, I can tell you, you know, within five miles of my house, any resource that I would need to build or to live or to eat or anything like that, I can tell you where it's at within five miles of my house. So when it becomes time that I have to travel to find these resources, they're, they're already there, and I know they're there because I've been there. I've done that. I've practiced it. I know where it's at. 
And I think that's, and that's really that's important. That's a big thing, I think. Yeah, I do too, because I think that if we ever end up in a really bad situation, um, you're not going to be the only one that thinks about the fact that you can go out there and find something to eat or find water to drink. But the people that know where it's at are going to be able to actually make use of it instead of being a wandering mob of, 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 of I hate to use the word, but a wandering mob of idiots, I think, is what we might see in a real bad situation. Um, I agree I just, with that. I just did a show, and I had 20 steps toward greater self-sufficiency, and one of them was identify at least six plants that, that grow native in your area that can provide you with food and go out and find yeah, where awesome. they're at. You know, you got to find awesome. where they're at. You, you can't wait until you need it to go find it. That, that's, that's, that's correct. That's, and that's, that's grasshopper. That is absolutely mentality. correct, yeah. right? you know, you And that is block eight of the Pathfinder system. Cool. Block eight of the Pathfinder system teaches you that you, that you have to learn and identify eight wild edibles that grow in your area and eight medicinal plants that grow in your area. Cool. So what you're saying follows exactly with the Pathfinder system. That's awesome how much synergy there is. And I think it's simply because these are the things that work, right? I I agree with that. Sooner or later, people that are on the right track end up in the same place. Um, I'll tell you what, one of the things for me that makes all of this stuff so so enjoyable and makes it part of my life instead of just like something I do in case is like if I'm gardening or, 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 or working with livestock or whatever or hunting or fishing, it's centering. You feel, I, I think that it makes people more authentic human beings. I mean, is is that part of what drives you? I mean, you spend a lot of time in the bush. Is there a lot of contentment when you're out there? Yeah, you know, I I feel very comfortable out there because, it just gives, I don't know how to explain it to you, but it just gives you a state of mental well-being out there where you're not hearing the hustle and bustle of everything around you all the time. The phone's not ringing. You know, you're not on your computer beeping emails coming in. It just, it just gives you a sense of contentment to just sit there and be surrounded by nothing but, you know, the sounds that are in the woods. Yeah. And I just think that it, most people would agree that even if they are sitting in, even if they're sitting in a park somewhere, you know, alone, and there's not a lot of people around them, they're more content than if they're sitting in an office building full of people. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. To me, I think it it's rooted in what we are as just human beings, that the majority of the time that there's been humans walking the planet, we haven't been in cubicles, we haven't been in cars, we haven't been in giant buildings, we haven't lived in apartments, we've been hunter-gatherers, and to a less extent, we've been you know, small-scale agriculturists, uh, not these big, giant corporate farms they have now, but you know, the way that people are still living. And I think that's another thing people don't realize is a lot of this stuff that you're teaching, that I'm training people to do, uh, be it at home or out in the woods, there's people all over the world that live this way every day right now. It's their lifestyle. It's not, a, it's not a foreign thing to them. They, they would come over here and think we're absolutely nuts that we depend on a gas pump to get where we're going because, you know, they've been using their feet for, you know, 50,000 years, and it seems to work all right for them. You're absolutely right. That's, you know, that's... Part of what you're saying is part of what I'm really looking forward to about this journey with Discovery because what they'll have to do, obviously, whenever they shoot these survival-type shows, they have to give you what they call indigenous time. When you go somewhere, obviously, you've never been before, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's Australia, Indonesia, Brazil, you know, any place like that that you've never been before, they're going to have to give you some local time, three, four days, with native people to teach you, you know, hey, if you eat this, it's going to kill you. Yeah. If you really have to have water, this is where you can get it. Yeah. You know, this is probably the most prolific thing that you can eat as far as a meat source goes in this area, this is how you catch it. And those types of things are going to be a great learning experience for me because I'm going to see these people, like you said, they live that every single day of their yeah. life, and it's natural to them. You know, and They don't have to rely on everybody else. 
and just back at the time that I used to, was a little kid and hung out with my grandfather, and we're talking, you know, early 80s, late 70s, a lot of those skills were still prevalent in America. A lot of the old men, the old women knew where the wild food was. They knew, uh, what would, like you said, what would kill you, what wouldn't, what animals were good for food, even that, you know, the ones that other people scoffed at. And, and my grandfather told me there's not many things that are really much better eaten than a raccoon. You know, right. and people look at a raccoon and go, ew, and you, well, why do you even feel that way? And those skills, and it's, it, it, you know, from fire starting to just understanding and, and interacting with your environment, knowing where things are, they've really been lost. And I, that's why I love seeing people train the way that you train is because we're bringing that skill back to people because it's important that we have them because we can't be sure that there will always be some new technological marvel to solve the next crisis. You know, I, I absolutely agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. And I, I think that there's a, there's a big problem, you know, nowadays with, with our young people. And because our parents or their parents don't teach them the things that our parents taught us, Jack, when we were little, or yep. our grandparents taught us, you know, I don't know what my son would do if there was no PlayStation or iPod. Yeah. So I, yeah. I think he'd just ball up and die. Uh, so I try to take him into the woods and make him understand, you know, hey, there's there's things in life besides electronics mm-hmm. that will keep you alive, man. This is not everything in the world. It's not about PlayStations and iPods and and uh, MP3 players. You know, it's just there there there's a big misconception in the world right now and a big problem with passing down the tribal knowledge. Yeah. We don't do it anymore, and there's a great need for that. And there's going to be a bigger need for it in the future, I think, that we don't even realize at this point. Yeah, because I, I do think we've depleted things at a rate that, that we, we're not even really aware of yet. And I, I think the other thing with young people is a lot of times they are addicted to all these electronics and gadgets and doodads. But once you get them out there and you pull them away for, from it, it's actually really enjoyable to watch them as they kind of open up to it and then realize that it actually is a lot more fun than they really thought it was going to be. I absolutely agree with that. I've been shooting some videos lately with my nine, well, my ten-year-old nephew. And it's just amazing, you know, the stuff that a kid can do if they want to and the things that the way they think sometimes will teach you things. Because, sure. I mean, I've actually learned a couple things from him by making him do something himself and not telling him how to do it yep. and making him figure it out. He's figured things out in ways that I didn't think about because kids don't think the way adults do. Kids, adults have preconceived notions of what will yep. work and what won't. Yep. Kids don't have that. Yeah, you it, know, it, so they find things that they can do that – it's like, wow, the yeah. light just went on in my head. Why didn't I think of that? You know, I'll tell you what. I think that everything that we've evolved over time has come from children. And not, you know, the whole etherical children are the future thing, but just because of what you just said, language has evolved because of children. As two different peoples would come together and their children would interact, that's what created the next new language and, and, and created new means of communication and understanding. And then that would take everything forward. And I think what happens is if you teach a kid all the things that you know as an adult and you don't try to show them what can't work, then they take your knowledge and without the, without the, uh, the, 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 the self-doubting can't in there, they just throw something on top of it and they're fearless with it. That's why they learn computers so fast. They don't care if it doesn't work. They just click on everything. Well, you take them out right, in the bush and they do the same damn thing. You know, you say, yeah, well, this is how you do this. And they're like, well, what about this, this, and this? And three of the, three <laughs> of the four things fall flat, but the one that works, you're like, wow, that was brilliant. You know? Yeah, so they weren't afraid to do that. Back. And I'm, I'm telling you folks, if you, if you do this stuff, take kids with you. 
you know, and, and, and beyond the, I call it beyond Cub Scouts, you know, because there's a lot of stuff that those guys do that's really cool, but there, there's so much more than is in a, in a book to get a bunch of badges, uh, just by going out there and experiencing things. So Dave, look, let's, let's get toward wrapping this stuff up. I've had you on the, on the horn here for about 40 minutes now. Um, but if somebody <laughs> wants to attend your school, I mean, you're going off to, 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 to film all over the world, or, or is your school going to still be open, or is somebody going to pitch hit for you? Or? Yeah, I've got uh, well, we've got the online, we've got the online course, uh, uh, obviously, and we talked about that a little bit uh, when we met in person. And the way that works is, uh, basically, you have a system that comes to you. It's basically like a, a correspondence course, but what it does is it gives you the outline of what you need to train yourself to learn, and then it gives you also a list of deliverables that you have to send back to our school. And some of that's in form of video, some of it's in, you know, uh, photo essay, some of it's in journaling. And it will help us to grade your progress and you know, to understand whether you're learning what you need to learn. So gotcha. you can do things that way. We also do have live courses, uh, hands-on courses. And I do have some other instructors that work for me um, that will be doing courses while I'm away. And when I'm when I am available, I'll be attending those courses as well. So, yeah, our school will still be open while I'm gone. Very cool. And, you know, I, I really appreciate you being on here today. Is there, you know, like, kind of do you have any last words for people just on, you know, why this stuff's important and, and what it means to you that, that people actually pay attention to us and listen to us? You know, I just think that everything seems to go in circles in history. You know, it just seems to be that way. And I think that, you know, sooner or later we are going to, as as humans, we're going to go beyond our means so far and use our resources up selfishly so bad that everything is going to go back to the hunter-gatherer mentality. It's going to have to go back and be forced to go back to the hunter-gatherer mentality. And if we don't understand and learn those techniques and those skills and those tools now, when the time comes, it's going to be too late. Well, thanks, Dave. Again, thanks for being here today. And, folks, uh I can't put it any better than that. I, I really hope that, that today's been enlightening for you. Dave's a great guy. He brings a lot to the table with knowledge, skills, and how to think. And that's what I want to leave you with today is how you think is so important, and it's so imperative that you never lose sight of that. If you think as a survivor all the time, you'll probably never end up in that term that both of us hate, survival situation, because you're being preemptive in nature. And that's why what we talk about here on the show all the time are the things that you can do that benefit you today. All this time that Dave spends out in the bush with students and alone, it benefits him day to day. He enjoys it, keeps him in great shape. Uh, he's got a business built off of it. All of that is living the, cro- the show credo, you know, having that better life today. And for, for you folks at home, make time to do these things and definitely make time to take kids with you because, as Dave's pointed out, they'll teach you while you're out there things that you're overlooking. And that's a great way to start living that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It really doesn't matter. Get spent 